if you've ever had a toothache, then you know that it's terrible because all you can think about is having a toothache. If you've had a headache, you know that headaches are terrible because all you can think about when you have a headache is the headache. Pain insists on being attended to. And uh, part of every misery is misery's shadow. That in a sense that it's not just the fact that we're merely suffering, but that in our suffering, we have to keep thinking about the fact that we're suffering. It's terrible. And uh, I have very good news for you this morning. Our God who has entered into our suffering uh, offers peace because he is the source of peace. These have been difficult days. It's been a difficult year. And uh, this morning we're going to be encouraged in the gospel because though the, the, the challenging days we've been in is like a, that headache that it feels like a day can't go by without us having to think about it. There is hope, there is joy, there is perseverance that is available and uh, peace and patience that God, by the power of his grace, can forge in us. So let's go to his word. Let's be encouraged this morning. Our text is from uh, 1 Peter chapter 3. I'm going to be reading verses 12 through to 16. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. This is God's word. Now, I chose to take us through 1 Peter as a church because that church was going through radical suffering. And uh, even though our suffering is, is different, uh, we can relate to it. This first church, Peter does not want them to forget the goodness of the gospel. I don't want us as a church to forget the goodness of the gospel, the power of the gospel, the, the, the uh, beautiful implications of the gospel. And um, so we're going to focus today solely on this uh, reason for our hope, giving a defense for our hope, and just recalibrating ourselves to uh, what, what Peter was after here with this church. One of the benefits of going through a teaching series the way we do here at Redeemer, where you go chapter by chapter and work through a book, the benefit is you can deep dive. One of the challenges of that is that as you're deep diving, you can lose the forest for the trees. So we have to zoom back out and remember the reason that Peter is saying, give a defense for your hope, starts back in chapter one, where he says, you have an inheritance in Jesus Christ that is decided. It's not pending. It's secure. It's assured. The physical resurrection of Jesus Christ has real-world implications for you, church, day to day. And so he doesn't, want, uh, he doesn't want that church, and I don't want us, our church, to get uh, what Dr. Paul Tripp calls gospel amnesia. And gospel amnesia, when he uses that term, he doesn't mean that we forget the details of the gospel. He doesn't mean that we forget the, the life, the perfect life, and the atoning death, and the divine resurrection of Jesus. We're not forgetting those details. When we become gospel amnesiacs, which is what Peter doesn't want this church to do under the crushing persecution of Rome, 
is we sort of live day to day in a gospel amnesia as though it didn't happen, that the implications don't matter, that we're essentially just as unsettled and anxious and worried as everybody else, that the, that the culture can broadly be suffering in the, the, the cloud of misery and, uh, and, and, un, un, and uncertainty, this sort of this shadow of uh, worry. And if we become gospel amnesiacs, then we get just sort of sucked into um, that same worry and anxiety. And so Peter doesn't want the church doing that. It's interesting the language that he chooses, because if you look at the text, he's saying things like, even if you should suffer, even if that should happen, don't worry, what can they do to you? Well, he knows that Rome, uh, you know, the crushing totalitarian regime that is Rome is on the rise. He knows that this church is is uh, likely going to uh, lose their livelihood. Some of them are going to lose their lives. Um, it's it's tragic, and yet he speaks with like this incredible confidence. Not because he has his head in the sand on reality. Not that you and I in these difficult days in our city ought to have our head in the sand about reality. But that there is a power, a recalibrating, recentering power in the magnitude of the gospel that enables you to look, stare reality in the face and not be uh, sucked in uh, to the tragedy of it. And so ultimately what Peter is getting at with this first church and what I want to encourage you with today is that we never really move past the cross. We only ever spiral more deeply into the richness and the reality of the cross, the implications of Jesus Christ and what his uh, life and his atoning death and his divine resurrection actually mean for us. Christ and him crucified, the benefit of Christianity. Is there any day-to-day benefit to Christianity or is it just a head trip? It's not just a head trip. There are day-to-day benefits to Christ and him crucified. So that's what we're going to look at uh, this morning. I want to just kind of focus on two things. First, the unsettling effect of forgetting the gospel message. And I've already got into that. And then we're going to really just sort of center around this final thing, which is the settling power of centering on the magnitude of the gospel message. So first, um, you know, the unsettling effect. Again, Peter knows that the, the, the church is, is suffering greatly. And um, even though in a different way, we can be suffering greatly. And yet he says in, in verse 15, he says, be, willing, be ready to give a defense for the hope that's in you. In other words, he's, he's reminding the church. He's like, church, while, while all hell is breaking loose and the world is melting, you have a message. And there's settling power in that message. I want to just share something with you. I'm going to share my screen real quick. And I want to give you a visual picture. All right. Two cars. If you don't know anything at all about cars, if you don't care about cars, it's probably not difficult for you to look at the first car, look at the second car, and go, you know what? They're the same car. And you're right, okay? The first car is a Porsche. The second car is the Porsche. The first car is the first Porsche ever created, 1963 Porsche 911. That one down there is the 2021 Porsche 911. But when you look at them, it's really, really clear that they're continually revisiting where they began. They never really deviate very far from where they began. In other words, they are on message. They are, this is what you call being on brand. I want to share something else with you. Okay, here's, here's two other cars. Now, if you know about cars, you already know what these are, but if you don't know anything about cars, let me help you out. The first car is a 1953 Corvette. And the second car is, you probably didn't guess it, a Corvette. Why? 
because there is no resemblance. They have not revisited over and over and over and over where they began. They have drifted greatly from where they began. Let's go back here. I want to give you this visual picture. Peter is saying to the church, there is, there, you've got to give a defense for your hope. The hope is a very specific message. It is a singular message. Mm-hmm. It is Christ and him crucified. It is his divine resurrection, which is a teaser trailer for where the teleology of humanity is headed. And he's saying, don't center yourself around anything else. Give a defense for your hope. So in other words, we've got to keep revisiting where we began. What the Christian faith is, uh, is this. The grace that ushered us into faith is the same grace by which we live it out. The power that ushered you in, the scandalous rescue, that is the same power that renews you, that restores you. Many of you, most of you actually in, our, in this church have small children. We're, we're made up of a church of small families. And one of the things you as parents are committed to is building resilience in your children so that they don't just get blown over by the first obstacle that comes in their life. You want to build resilience in them. What God has done in the gospel of Jesus Christ is he unites us to Christ. He fills us with the spirit of Christ to build resilience in us uh, for suffering. And Peter is um, reminding the church of that, calling them back to that and saying, don't get off message. Don't get off brand. Now I want to you know, gently challenge you and provoke you this morning. Have you, over the course of this last year, got off brand, got off message? A year ago, were you quite centered around the goodness of God, the bigness and the magnitude of Jesus, the message of the gospel? But as the wearying effects of this one-year toothache that we've all been suffering has made us just think about it constantly, is now the message of hope a microwaved, regurgitated version of the culture's message of hope, whichever sort of camp you're landing in as it relates to the very important and good discussions we're having around uh, government, limitations of government, vaccines, rollout of vaccines, safety of vaccines, take the vaccine, don't take the vaccine. Have any of these things now become your message? Have any of these things now become like, this is the defining message of my life. I am going to just continually trumpet this thing, which has somehow weaseled its way in as this rivaling allegiance for my attention and my hope and my desire, and sort of become this sort of gravitational force that sort of sucked me into it. And uh, I have an appointment on Sunday morning at 10.30 that I got to keep, but sort of functionally every day, I'm pretty much hoping in what all of my neighbors are hoping in. My friend, I'm not preaching down to you. Uh, Please receive this gentle rebuke in the spirit in which I'm giving it. I've been rebuking myself all week. The word of God has been rebuking me all week. And I think that it is so important for us in these days where the opportunity for disunity abounds, the opportunity for us to sort of slide into various camps on various issues, even within this own church, abounds. And I'm not saying that we, you know, sort of just sort of cut off all thoughtful discussion on controversial topics. What I'm saying is there is a hope that we have. We have to give defense for that hope. That is the message. It must be the message. The defense for our hope 
uh, is not the government, regardless of our feelings about that. It's not the vaccine, regardless of our feelings about that. It's not unveiling some conspiracy and pulling back the, 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 the curtain on the wizard, if that's, you know, your primary concerns. That's not, none of it is the message. And so we've got to center around the, the message of hope because if we don't, there is an unsettling effect. Peter doesn't want that as the church is staring down the barrel of a totalitarian regime um, that's crushing them. And I don't want you uh, having an unsettled life as you're staring down the challenges that are going to continually face us for months um, ahead. Uh, in, in Macbeth, uh, Shakespeare has this great line. Uh, he says, each new morn, new widows howl, new orphans cry, new sorrows strike heaven on the face. Feels a bit like the tagline of our lives for the last little while. Just the challenging that we're constantly in. So how do we face it? How do we be honest with it? How do we live with empowering grace, you know, settled and centered uh, through the rumble of this cultural panic? Well, the gospel gives us tremendous resources. As Christians, we're given tremendous resources. I'm mindful that some of you joining us, um, you may be exploring Christian faith or thinking about Christian faith. And so I, I want to just take, you know, a minute and get you to, to maybe consider a couple things about how different worldviews, um, you know, sort of e- equip their members to think about suffering. And then I want to center around, of course, you know, uh, my, 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 my bias being the truth and the power of Christianity on how it, how it resources us for suffering. If you have friends who, are, uh, who ascribe to karmic religions— you know, the idea that you live a good life, you're judged on the basis of your goodness, and then um, you are essentially reincarnated into the next life, and that's how karma works, and you, your lives become better. Uh, and to, the goal, in the end, being to escape that cycle and sort of end up in the all-soul, so there's no me, there's no you, there's no personal ego, there's just like us. Okay, if, you have, if, if, if you're karmic in your religion, then the way that you think about suffering is, you, it's normal, Right? It's here because you did something in the past life, so don't cry about it. How do they tell you to deal with suffering in karmic religions? Resign to it. Resign to it and be a good person in it. That's what the karmic religions will tell you. If you have uh, Buddhist friends, um, your Buddhist friends, you know, the Buddha, um, before he was the, the, the Buddha, the Siddhartha, he's got a privileged life and he leaves the palace and he leaves the privilege and he sees these four distressing signs. You know, he sees a poor man, a sick man, a, 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 an old man and a dead man. And, then, you know, he contemplates for a while and he leaves and he comes up with an eightfold path for enlightenment, which is what Buddha means. And uh, what he realizes is, well, the reason they're suffering is there's a gap between what you want and what you have. And that gap is called suffering. And therefore, all of life is suffering. And in fact, the older that you get, it, suffering is inevitable. So unlike the karmic religions that say, you know, resign to suffering, uh, our Buddhist friends will say um, the solution for suffering is, is to um, uh, detach. So just don't love things and need things and want things. Detach. But the, 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 then you've got the, the Stoics, and, it, and there's not, we probably don't know many Stoics, but the Stoics are like, no, no, don't resign to suffering. Uh, don't detach from suffering. Be hard-nosed, welcome suffering. Be tough, hard as nails. 
Come out of this, come out of this two years of COVID bigger, badder, faster, stronger, better. The stoic. Don't cry about it. What are you going to do about it? Stoicism. And they've got all of these ways of sort of, they sort of welcoming, you know, thinking about suffering. But most of the voices in your life are not likely any of those things. Maybe you have some voices in your life that sort of sound that way. But statistically speaking, in our city, it's uh, secular moderns. The, uh, that's the prevailing worldview in this city. If, so if you're a modern, how does the modern sort of secular worldview prepare you for suffering? If there's only the natural world, there is no God, there is no divine. If there is no transcendent and we're locked into this eminent frame, then the only option is to make the eminent ultimate, right? And so if this is the case, how do we um, deal with the suffering? Well, there's a uh, cultural anthropologist uh, out of Harvard. His name is Richard Schweber. And in some of the writings that studies that he's done, he spent a lot of time overseas and living in India and examining other worldviews. And one of the things he says is the secular modern has no resources for suffering. We are, we as a society are the least equipped in all of world history uh, to deal with uh, suffering. And the reason for that is because as a spiritual person, you believe that your meaning in life is outside of this world. But as a secular person, you only have this world and therefore Suffering is the sort of the taking away of your meaning. Uh, you know, if you're a secular modern, then you don't have a God who's telling you what the meaning of life is. You're free, in a sense, to, to decide what your own meaning is. But the problem is with that is whatever meaning you choose, it's here in this physical world. And suffering by nature is ta- stealing your meaning. Is it your health and vitality? Is it your family? Is it your friends? Is it is it your job? Is it your vocation? Whatever it is you choose to say, this is the meaning of my life. Time by, by its very nature is the enemy that's stealing those things. And so therefore we're not equipped. So unlike these other sort of religions where you're either resigning to suffering or, or welcoming suffering or uh, detaching from suffering, most of the voices in your life are grieving and raging at suffering. That is the modern secular response to suffering. Grief and rage. Because unlike these other you know, spiritual you know, religions that believe that there, there's a, some sort of a reason for it, if you're a secular person, there's no reason for it. You're just enduring it and it's, it's, grieving. it's grievous. And the grief plays out in rage. And so a lot of the rivaling voices in your life sound like a mix of, of, of grief and rage because we are incredibly, incredibly frustrated as a, as a culture. We don't have a lot of resources. Um, but the good news of, of the gospel of Christian faith, of Christianity, is that the resurrected Jesus Christ bodily means that our hope and our, ul- our ultimate sense of meaning is not actually in this life. So therefore, suffering in this life only pushes us more deeply into our source of hope and more deeply into our ultimate source of meaning. So we don't stick our heads in the sand and pretend, you know, and, and pretend like we're not going through suffering, but there is tremendous resource as we look at Jesus Christ for suffering and tremendous hope and resilience. So let's move on and, and consider that. The settling power of centering on this magnitude of the gospel. Again, back to verse 15. Give a defense for the hope that is in you. What is this hope? 
I mean, what made it attract? What made Christianity attractive in Rome, and what makes it attractive to us now? You know, the prevailing uh, philosophies at the, at uh, the time that Peter wrote this letter were um, the philosophies of Seneca and and uh, Epictetus and Cicero. Cicero was a political figure, and uh, Epictetus and Seneca were both philosophers, but they were all Stoics, and so they were all they were all basically saying, um, you know. Kiss your kids and live a great life because tomorrow you're dead and after and, and after you die, you don't exist. There's non-existence. And so the Roman culture, and much like today culture, even if you intellectually accept that, it's sort of emotionally, you know, spiritually cold. They have a problem with believing that passing into a state of non-existence is somehow satisfying. And so Christianity comes along in that culture and in today's culture and offers something that they didn't have this God, this, this God who loved us so much, he comes into our suffering. He doesn't stay outside it and fire commands at us for dealing with it. Jesus Christ comes into our supper, suffering, sympathizes with our weaknesses, takes it on, lives it. Right? Have you experienced unjust suffering? Do you feel that the suffering right now that we're going through is unjust? Jesus understands that. He lived it unwarranted he understands it have you wept at the gravesite of a friend our jesus has have you wept at the loss of a child our god has have you been the victim of injustice or racism our jesus has have you had your friends stab you in the back at work or school or your past church experience or this church experience. Our Christ Jesus has. I mean, he has, he has felt and embodied our suffering and he took it on and he came and he lived the perfectly loving and wise life that we should be living, but we're not. He died that atoning death. He rose on the third day and the bodily resurrection has deep implications. Our faith is not founded upon a missing body. Our faith, our, our, our faith is founded upon a resurrected, glorified physical body. And so when you look at the, the majesty and you glimpse at the goodness of the gospel, you know, there is this glorious re- renewal that is available, that hope that will get you through suffering. If everything I'm saying to you is boring to you, I got nothing. If, if immortality and eternal life and the resurrection of that body of yours, which is decaying, and the restoration of all things, the society of love and unity and justice and mercy that we crave, that we wish we had, that we don't have. If all of this resurrection reality, the promise of the gospel, the teleos of humanity, of where we're going, if that makes you yawn, I got nothing. I can't think of anything conceivably greater to rest and put put our hope in. And so let this good news of the gospel, church, let it settle you. Let it recenter you. Let it dial you back out of all the rivaling voices of week in and week out, rallying for your attention, rallying for your allegiance. Let this gospel recenter you. Let the gospel on Sunday recalibrate you for Monday. How do we face, how do we face Monday? Look at Jesus. There's this range of emotion in Jesus. It's so beautiful. It's, Jesus is, 
humanizing of the you know our experience. This transcendent God that's also tender. Look at him crying and weeping at the graveside of his friend Lazarus. But then he's trusting in the God of all things, the, resurre- the, re- the, the resurrection and the life, and he raises Lazarus from death. But before he does that, he's genuinely weeping. What do we learn from this? How do you face Monday? When you check your newsfeed later this afternoon and you see things that you don't like, when decisions are made that you, that you don't agree with, how do you relate to that? Like Jesus, you weep and you trust. We just weep and trust. Look at him in the Garden of Gethsemane as the blood is dripping from his forehead under the stress of the crushing burden of the cross. But he's weeping and he's trusting. He's crying out to his father. Look at him on the cross, praying for the salvation of the people that are murdering him. He's weeping, but then he's also saying, my God, trust. My God is covenant language. We can weep and we can trust. We go where Jesus went. You know, our midweek gatherings, Susan talked about it, and in a couple of weeks, we're just going to go to the Psalms because there is a range of emotion in the Psalms, joy and pain. You can cry out in, in he- to heaven, you can rejoice to heaven, and you can sue heaven. That's the Psalms. It's a range of emotions. We, we weep, but we trust. Brutal, beautiful honesty. Um, some of you may have heard of, uh, well, many of you will likely have heard of uh, Dostoevsky, and when he was young, uh, he had a, an understanding of the gospel in a profound way. He was raised uh, in Christian Orthodox, and um, he had memorized uh, large passages of Job because it was, you know, he was struck by how the gospel met suffering. And uh, in the Brothers Karmanov, I want to just read something that he says that speaks to this recentering power of the gospel in suffering. And he says this, you just see how the gospel has informed his writing. I believe like a child that suffering will be healed and made up for, that in all the humiliating absurdity of human contradictions, they will vanish like a pitiful mirage, like the despicable fabrication of the impotent and infinitely small Euclidean mind of man, that in the world's finale, at the moment of eternal harmony, something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice for all hearts, for the comforting of all resentments, for the atonement of all crimes of all humanity, for all the blood that was shed, that it will make it not only possible to forgive, but to justify all that has happened. That sounds like chapter one of Peter. That sounds like Revelation 21. It is the reality of gospel hope deeply seated in our hearts that gives us, uh, resettles us and and recalibrates us in the midst of difficult times and of suffering. Give a defense for the hope that is within you, church. Don't get off message. We've got, we're going to engage in lots of good discussions and debates over weeks and months as it relates to, you know, what we think about how the government is handling or not handling things and everybody's and their brother's views on vaccines. But none of this is our message. None of this is the message. And so may we be recalibrated. May we, you know, may I encourage you to take the kind of energy and time that you're investing in trying to understand all of these things and invest that kind of energy and time in having the magnitude of the gospel grip your soul. Your heart and your mind will will be renewed as you do this. 
You know, 50 years from now, everything that I think about all of these things isn't going to matter because I'm not going to be here. And I'm going to tell you one thing. When I'm laying on my deathbed, I'm not going to be thinking to myself, boy, I wish I took more time just parsing out my views on governmental overreach. That's not my message. If I'm offending you and you're like, I'm going to send this guy some reading this week, don't bother. That's not my message. And my friend, you have a different vocation than I do, but that's not your message either. Let us give a defense for the hope that is within us. You know, we recently rewatched Lord of the Rings as a family and there's this great scene where Sam uh, Gamgee looks at Gandalf after the ring falls down in the fires of Mordor and he says, and he says uh, is everything sad going to become untrue? Well said, Sam. That's the teleology of humanity. That's the defense. That's the essence of the defense for the hope that is within us. Everything that is sad will be untrue. Remember in the months Ahead, church, everything sad is going to become untrue. And may that give us grace. And by the way, we all need a Sam in our lives, don't we? Right? We all need someone who lifts us up when we're fainting and falling. By God's grace, may we be Sam for each other in this church in these difficult days. Um, to borrow from C.S. Lewis, he says, If you want to get warm, you have to stand near the fire. If you want to get wet, you must go into the water. If you want joy, power, peace, eternal life, you must get close to or even into the thing that has them. They're not a sort of prize that God can hand out to anyone. God can't give us peace and happiness apart from himself because apart from himself, there is no such thing. Good news, church. United to Jesus Christ, you've been given this joy. His empowering spirit is in you to lift you in the difficulties of this upcoming week to recalibrate you and recenter you by this joy. And it seems like we can't go a day without somebody in our lives saying to us, you know, I've been doing some reading. And uh, as they're looking in their weariness and their tiredness, you know, anxiously awaiting for COVID salvation, they want to pass something along. You know, I've been doing some reading. Church, as I close, I've been doing some reading. I'd like to share it with you. Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and on earth, invisible and visible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have preeminence. Jesus Christ has made us alive together with him. He has forgiven you of all your trespasses. He has wiped out the handwriting of requirements that are against you, which are contrary to you. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed the principalities and the powers. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. I've been doing some reading. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea, and I saw a holy city, the new Jerusalem, like it was coming down out of heaven from God, as though it were a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among his people, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them, and he will be their God." He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death. There will be no more mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. 
I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. May we rest in the settling power, the magnitude of the gospel, church, and may it give you peace. Let's pray.